Hebrews chapter number 11, and ooh, that's a little hot. Let's turn that back just a hair, Nick. Hebrews chapter number 11, if you were in our Vacation Bible School adult class, a little bit of this may be review for you tonight. We spent some time one evening in Hebrews chapter number 11, uh, but I do promise you, I do want to move in, into some area that we didn't deal with and uh, really hone in on it, but we're probably going to say a few things that may sound a little bit like what you heard on that night as well. Hebrews chapter number 11, I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1, Hebrews chapter 11, Verse number one, the Bible says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good report through faith. We understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear by faith. Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead, yet speaketh. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed, and was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, in heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be in the house of God. Help us as we approach your word to do so with reverence and sincerity and humility. Lord, help us to allow you to work and to do a work in us. Lord, reading about all these Old Testament saints who their faith in you gave room for you to do a great work in their life and through their life just reminds me how desperately you need our obedience to your word for you to work in us. So I pray that you'd help us to respond in faith and in submission as you seek to do a work in us. And may we please you in our in our attitude and in our reception of your word. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Here in a few moments, I want us to really zero in in verses 13 through 16. 
And I want to preach tonight on this thought, the pilgrim's life. But before we get there, I want us to take a few moments and walk with the apostle as he begins in this book of the Bible, in this chapter, dealing with the concept of faith. Faith is a pretty popular topic, or at least it is a very commonly used buzzword. We're getting ready to go into a political season where all of a sudden everybody's people of faith. They won't tell you what that faith is in, but they're people of faith. Amen. And uh, they just use this as sort of a generic term all the time. But I'm glad that the faith of the Bible is not a nondescript, elusive, slippery concept that doesn't really help us in our life. But biblical faith is real. Biblical faith is relevant. Biblical faith is practical. Biblical faith is transformative. So the apostle is dealing with the concept of faith. And our opening verses here, even before we get to really our text tonight, could be divided into two portions. In the first three verses, we have the explanation of faith. The Bible says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. God doesn't leave us to ascribe our own definition to the, to the principle of faith. Instead, He defines it for us. And He tells us what faith is. That's good. I'm the type of person, when I, when I put something together, I don't just need written instructions, I need pictures too. Amen. So, God, God was looking out for me. He didn't just give me written instructions, but He draws word pictures throughout this as well. And he teaches us three things about faith and what it means. The first thing we notice is in verse number one as he defines it. It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's interesting to me, though, that even in this definition, it is not the form of faith that's described, but rather it's the function and force of of faith that's described. In other words, it doesn't tell you how tall it is or how wide it is or how much it weighs or what color faith is. But rather, he tells us what faith does in our life that we might identify it. Notice that he tells us that faith gives substance or essence to spiritual realities that God is exercising in our life. He says it's the substance of things hoped for. I'd remind you the word hope is not the anemic word that that modern secular society presents to us when they use the word hope. But hope is the active attitude of the soul and heart that believes the word and truth of God. And Paul tells us here that faith is the substance of that. In other words, faith is what gives expression to that hope that we have. Therefore, it's the evidence of things not seen. I don't know, but it almost sounds like Paul's been reading uh, the epistle of James. James himself talked about how that faith gives practical life to our dogma and doctrine and how that a person can say they they have faith and another person can have works and then look at the person that only says they have faith and say, show me your faith without your works and then say, I will show you my faith by my works. Certainly this sort of abstract, uh, you know, theory theoretical classroom faith that is so often uh, touted in modern society, a faith that is that, that exists purely within the realm of people's cute sayings, is not biblical faith. Biblical faith is real and operative. It's meaningful. It gives substance and it could be taken as evidence. In the court of law, of, of God's law, faith would be the evidence you would present as to the fact that you genuinely have believed on the Lord. So he talks about faith, and here's the overall thought he's driving at, that it is fundamental. It's not an auxiliary, it's it's not an ancillary thought or, or topic, it's, it's not icing on a cake. 
I mean, it's the very, it's the very substance of it. Verse number two, he says this, for by it, by faith, the elders obtained a good report. By the elders, he means the Old Testament saints. To remind you that he's writing the book of Hebrews to Hebrews. <laughs> so when he says elders, he's talking about the fathers in the Hebrew faith. And he's talking about the Old Testament saints. And he says they obtained a good report. Now, what is a report? Well, a report is a testimony. And what he's saying is you can look back at their life and see faith in their life. And in fact, he'll begin to take us on a journey over the next few verses to express and explain that. But he points just simply to the fact that faith worked in their life. Faith was victorious in their life. And we could say this, faith, it's not only fundamental, but it's fruitful. If you want your Christianity to bear fruit, you're going to have to have faith. If you want it to really touch the world and change things and change you and change others, you're going to have to have faith. And then verse 3, he makes an interesting statement about faith. He says, through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. In other words, he, he looks around and he says, you know, even if you just accept creation at face value, which every Bible believer should do, He says, if you believe in creation, then you've begun from a foundation of faith. Your concept of God and even of the world around you is informed by faith. And we could say it this way. It's not only fundamental and fruitful, but he points to the fact that it's foundational. A man can't have a relationship with God without faith because a man won't even believe there's a God to have a relationship with, except he accept it by faith. So it gives us the explanation of faith in these first three verses. Then verse 14, verse 4 down to verse 15, he gives us some examples of faith. And we're not going to really dig deep into them. We don't have time. But he basically views two different eras. If you were to go on throughout the rest of the book of of Hebrews chapter 11, uh, then you would find there's a third era. But in our text, he really only touches on two eras of human history. And he deals with the fact that faith has always been the ground or the conduit through which a man could have a relationship with God. He points first to faith in, I'm going to call it this, the archaic era. We could say in the antediluvian era, in the time leading up to the flood, the first 1,600 years of human history, the first six chapters of the book of Genesis. And he goes all the way back. You say, where's the best place to start, preacher? At the beginning. Amen. So he goes back to the beginning and shows that faith, rather than being a late addition to a, to the concept of a man having a relationship with God, has instead actually been the foundation and bedrock of mankind ever having had a relationship with God. It's not just that we have graduated to faith as a grounds or means, and it's not just that there's been a transition to faith as a grounds or means, it's that it has always been by faith, that a man had a relationship with God. He points to none other than Abel, uh, the uh, son of Adam and of Eve, the first uh, victim of violent murder in human history. And he says this, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness. He got a good report. He had a testimony that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. So the first thing he points to is someone worshiping by faith. And by worshiping, we don't just merely mean uh, heaping praise or adoration upon God, but we mean a man approaching unto God by faith. 
Abel is coming to God with shed blood, sacrifice in hands, that he might appease God and that he might atone for his own sin. It's interesting when you look back at this time in human history. God had set a precedent in the Garden of Eden. Man had sinned. What did God do about that sin? Well, he he slew animals and took coats of skin and covered them with those. And they now were able to abide in the presence of a holy God, though they were sinners. And it's interesting that Abel would go on, the Bible calls him a keeper of sheep. You know, when you study the Bible, you find that God did not permit mankind to consume meat until after the flood. So you have to ask this question, why was Abel raising sheep? Well, you know, you say, well, preacher, sheep are good for lots of different things. And and I agree with you, maybe he's raising it for wool, but I'd remind you he's living in a temperate climate. Where there's no need for that. He's living in an antediluvian world with a canopy of water over the earth where there's not wild temperature swings. Why would he have raised these? And here's the more salient question. Why would not just a man raise sheep? Why would Abel raise sheep? Well, I'll tell you why I believe he'd raise sheep because he believed he was a sinner. Amen. And he knew he had to get to God. And he wanted to have a means and a way to get to God. And so he raised these sheep so he'd have a flock to go out and take a sheep out of the flock and slay it to approach unto God. Well, all this was done by faith. God had said, this is how I want to be approached unto. Abel said, I believe you, God, and I'm now going to act upon that belief. So we see a man worshiping by faith. Verses 5 and 6, we see Enoch. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found Because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Genesis chapter 5 is a little more succinct as it describes the life and testimony of Enoch. It simply says this, that Enoch walked with God and was not. And here in Enoch, we find an example of a man not just worshiping by faith, but walking by faith. In other words, maintaining a relationship with God by faith. The apostle, he doubles down on this in verse 6. The fact that a man can't and won't walk with God except by faith, because without faith, it's impossible to please him. The fact that Enoch walked with God, what does that mean? Well, it means that the world was going one direction. The imagination of every man's thoughts was only evil continually. Enoch said, I don't want to walk that way. God's walking this way. I won't walk with them. I'm going to walk with God. And he went God's direction. In other words, he lived in fellowship with the Lord. Well, how could he have done that without faith? Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Why is that? For he that cometh to God must believe that he is person won't live to please God if he doesn't believe there's a God to please. And that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Enoch didn't just believe that there was some spectral being uh, residing somewhere in some celestial realm. He believed there was a God he could know. And a God that knew him. And a God that was interested in his life. And a God that expected things out of him. How did Enoch come to this? Well, he came to it by faith. Verse 7, he talks about Noah. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. Here in in Noah, we find a man working by faith. Uh, Noah spent many long years laboring and putting together with his 
family the ark. And why did he do that? God had gave commandment that it was going to rain, give warning that it was going to rain. It had never rained before. <laughs> he was moved with fear uh, of things not seen as yet. It had never rained before. Prior to that time, the earth was irrigated through the dew that would rise uh, through the ground, and there had been no need for rain to fall from heaven. And certainly the water courses had never burst from underneath the earth. And God spoke to Noah and said, no, I'm going to do a thing that's never been seen before. And now, in light of that, you need to prepare your family for this day of judgment. Noah looked and said, it's never happened, but God never lies. So I believe God. God says this is going to happen. So I want to labor for my family that they might avert the judgment of God and avoid the judgment of God in their lives. In other words, all those long years, every hammer swing, every nail driven, every tree felled was done by faith. He was saying, I believe God is true. I believe what he said happened will happen. So we see faith in the archaic era. Uh, Then the apostle moves on to faith in the Abrahamic era. He begins to talk about Abraham and how faith molded his life. He says in verse number eight, by faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out. Where'd faith come in? Here's where he went out, not knowing whither he went. We find Abraham doing three things by faith in this passage. First, we find him by faith departing his home, leaving behind that which he knew and going forward to that which he did not know. And you know, that really, if there's ever been a definition of walking by faith in the Christian life, that's it. We're leaving behind some things that we know. And we're going forward into a life that we cannot presume to guess what it contains. We know it'll have the blessing and favor of God. We know that God will watch over us. We know it'll be touched by providence. But we do not know. And Abraham knew all those things. But he did not know where he was going. But by faith, he left behind that which he had loved and instead pursued a God that he loved more. We see him departing his home. Verses 9 and 10, we see him and his descendants dwelling in tents. It says, by faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, his son and grandson, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Boy, I, and I've got a message to preach here in a moment. We'll see if we get to it. But I, I, I love how... This is described in the word of God. You understand, he had left many long years ago with God saying, I'm taking you to a place and to a city that I have appointed for you. Many long years he walked in that place without ever laying a cornerstone. Many long years he raised his son in that place and his son dwelled in tents with never a permanent dwelling place. Then his son had children and they dwelt in that land without never. The only stones they ever laid were altar stones. They never laid foundation stones. And these all died in faith, not having received the promises. And why is that? I like the next phrase. For he looked for a city with hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He could have just said, let's just stop here and settle. But he said, I'm not going to settle for less than the promise of God. I'm not going to settle for less than the will of God. I'm not going to settle for less than God's best. God told me he was building me a city. He didn't tell me to build a city. He told me he was building a city. That he was laying a foundation. That 
he was erecting walls, that he was putting a roof on, that he was doing all these things. And I could stop and build my own city, but I'm not going to. I'm going to keep dwelling in tents until I come to that city. Hey, bless the Lord. He did lay a cornerstone, the Lord did. In Zion, he laid a chief cornerstone. And he that believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Hey, Abraham, he dwelt in a house and in a city that was not of human hands, but whose builder and maker is God. And now the house of Abraham, which isn't Jew alone, but is Jew and Gentile, by faith in Jesus Christ. Now he's entered into that promise. But he said, I'm not going to stop here and just settle for what this world offers. Instead, I want to go forward for what the Lord wants. I might have church on a Wednesday night. We see him dwelling in tents, not making this world his home. And then in verses 11 and 12, we see them depending on God's promises. Through faith also, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age. How is that? Why is that? Because she judged him faithful who had promised. Now, let me pause there and just say, this sounds real mystical, but it's not. She could have said, I'm not going to trust God to do that. And God would have said, well, I'm not going to do it by flesh. I'll only do it by faith. But because she said, you know, God's faithful. I want a child and I'd love for God to give me a child. And I believe God can. That opened the door for God to by faith do something in her life. This is not her naming and claiming things. This is not her putting things in God's mouth that God has not said. This is simply her looking and saying, God said he wants to do this. And if I won't believe him, he can't do it because he won't do anything in the flesh. He'll only do it by faith. But if I'm willing to judge him faithful and trust him, I'm allowing him to do something even in my life. Therefore, verse 12, spring there even of one and him as good as dead. I like that. Him as good as dead. Uh, You understand that that, uh, Abraham and Sarah received Isaac twice. They received him from a dead womb and they received him from an altar of death. They received in both places. What a picture that is of the Lord Jesus Christ. Received twice. And he says this, Therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead, as so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. Here's what we find them depending on God's promises. God said, I'll do this. And they said, all right, Lord, then I'll trust that you'll do this. You say, well, preacher, what's the difference between that and the prosperity peddlers? The difference is, who's the one speaking for God? Is God speaking for himself, or are we trying to speak for God? I can name and claim a myriad of things that I think God should do, but that doesn't mean God's going to do them. And faith is not me trying to appropriate God's power and put words into his mouth. That's not faith, not by any definition of what faith is. Faith is not me seeing value in my words, and so I try to put them in God's mouth. It's me seeing value in God's words, so I try to hide them in my heart. It's me saying, I believe God's true, and I'm going to trust God to do exactly as God has said. So here, the apostle has established this principle of faith. But then he notices something in verse 13. He says, you know, these people that walked by faith and they trusted God, These all died in faith. Now, that sounds noble, right? But there's some things I don't want to die in faith about. I don't want to die in faith that my kids will get saved. I want to die in confidence that they have got saved. I don't want to die in faith that there'll be some good that comes out of my life. I want to die in confidence that God has brought forth fruit out of my life. 
And so when it says these all died in faith, that's not a noble statement intrinsically. It's not saying, oh, look out, look what people of faith they were. He was saying, you know, if you notice, all these people walked by faith, but all of them died not having received the promises. In other words, he's pointing to the fact that it's in the natural course of order in the life of the believer that faith be a constant principle, not just at the moment we get saved, but the rest of our life that we are to be walking by faith. Now, let me say clearly, so there's no misunderstanding. I believe when a person accepts Christ as their Savior, he saves them. And I would say this, it's not our faith that saves us. It is his grace that saves us. But it is our faith that is the the avenue through which we can approach under that grace. Because how could we depend on his grace without first believing that he's died for us on Calvary? And so the Bible says it the correct way, as it always does, by grace are ye saved through faith. Not by faith are ye saved through grace, by grace are ye saved through faith. Faith's what gets us to the grace of God. The grace of God saves us, and we are then sealed under the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit of promise. So I'm not in any way suggesting that if we cease trusting the Lord to a certain degree, God snatches our salvation away. But by the same token, it would be naive and unbiblical to suggest that faith only serves in the life of the believer at the moment that they receive Christ. No, in fact, faith becomes the prevailing principle in our life for the rest of our days. So he points to faith in their life, and he points to what that did. He said these all died in faith, not having received the promise. So what did that make them? What did that do to them to have to live their days in faith and to have to die in faith? He says this, they didn't receive the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. I told you a moment ago that I want to preach on the pilgrim's life. And I don't know how much preaching I'll get done, but I've got an outline, so I'll read it to you at the very least. Here, the conclusion that is drawn is this, that a, that a man that's headed to a place that he does not reach in this life could only be described as a pilgrim. And that you and I, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, a right assessment of our station in this world. Hey, listen, I'm glad that my my condition or my station, my status with God is of a beloved son nested in his bosom. But in this world, my station is not that of a popular person. It's not that of power. It's not that of prosperity. But it's to be that of pilgrimage. I'm to look at my time in this earth as a place I'm just passing through, man. And just trying to make an impact for the cause of Christ. Notice three thoughts and I'll be done very quickly. Notice first off the characterization of the pilgrim. And what defines them as pilgrims. For these Old Testament saints. It was that they died in faith not having received the promises. What were the promises that they were believing in? Well, in a country and in a place that God was leading them to. That certainly is true in your life and in mine. We need to fix it firmly in our mind that this world is not our home. Our citizenship's in heaven. I'll be honest, it's got a little easier over the past few years to do that. I mean, this world has gotten awful inhospitable over these last few years. And, man, that's probably a good thing. I don't like it any better than you, but it's probably good. 
because it's reminded us, us as Christians that we need to we need to we need to pull our tent stakes up a little bit. We we some of us had started putting foundation stones. Some of us had started pouring footings. Some of us had started thinking that this life and this world was what it was all about. And we were shown in a heartbeat that all that we thought we had in this world can be gone in a moment. And that shouldn't cause us dis, uh, that shouldn't cause us distress or concern because that's the natural order of things. He talks about what defines them as pilgrims. Then he talks about what drives them as pilgrims. If a man's a pilgrim, how did he get that way? Well, he has seen some things by faith. It says, but having seen them afar off, a man that's a pilgrim leaves and he heads a direction and he can't see the destination, but by faith he knows it's there. And so he walks in a direction because he has, through the eye of faith, seen something that the eye of flesh cannot see. Man, what a characterization that is of you and I as believers. I'm on a heavenward march, and I know it's real. I know it's real. I don't hope it's real. I know it's real. I don't think it's real. I know it's real, man. And you say, well, preacher, you've never seen it. Oh, I've never seen it with these eyes of flesh. But I can read my Bible like we did on Sunday morning, and I can by faith see that there is a city that we're headed toward. They've seen some things by faith. They've been persuaded by faith. It says this, they were persuaded by them, persuaded of them. I will tell you this, the city we're going to, I've been fully persuaded of. I'm confident it's better than this. I'm confident it's where we belong. I'm confident it's going to be a place that we'll have rest, and it's going to be a place where we'll have rejoicing. They're persuaded of them. I've made up my mind. And then they embraced them by faith. It says they embraced them. They're not just being dragged there begrudgingly. Some of us, man, we've got that, we've got that, that, that pillar of salt condition. We're, we're looking back at Sodom and Gomorrah. And some of us, we've got, we've got that Egypt syndrome. We're remembering the leeks and the onions and the fish and the garlic. We've allowed these things to have a pull on us. But the pilgrim has left because he's embraced the reality that where he's going is better than what he's left behind. They've embraced him. And then they've confessed by faith. They've confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. When they've set out leaving, they've said, this ain't my home anymore. I'm done with it. I'm headed to another place. There's no turning back from that. We can, we'll see, but by faith we shouldn't. So he describes what drives them as pilgrims. Then he talks about what denotes them as pilgrims. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. It's so funny. I'm guilty of this. I ain't even preaching to you, all right? You never do this, but I do this. It's funny how when we start living for Christ, we become shocked that the world takes offense at that. You understand, living for Christ, I mean, it's like Noah when he built that ark. By doing that, he condemned the world. He was saying, I'm done with this world and God's done with this world. That's why I'm building this boat. I'm building this boat because God's angry at you. I'm building this boat because God's done with you. And you know, when we start to put on that satchel and we put on our walking shoes and we start living for Christ and heading towards heaven and living with faith in mind, we're shocked that the world takes offense at that. They look at us and they're like, well, what's so wrong with us? And then we ought to have nerve enough to tell them, amen? What denotes them as pilgrims? Well, if you say those things, you're obviously saying you're leaving and headed in a direction. So he talks about the characterization of the pilgrim. Then verse 15, he shows us the temptation of the pilgrim. Says this, and truly, if they'd been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. 
But now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Now, to understand verse 15, it's important to note that there was a transition in verse 13 to verse 14. In verse 13, he is describing the conduct of Old Testament saints. But in verse 14, he then begins to talk about the pilgrim in the generic sense. He says, for they that say such things. And he continues that language in verses 15 and 16. And that's important to note for this reason. In verse 15, he's not saying that these saved individuals in backsliding would have lost their salvation, but rather he's talking about a a pilgrim as an ideal. And what he's saying is a pilgrim that is journeying from where they're at to a new country. There are certain dangers that beset them and they're not bandits and road agents. It's not people wandering up and down and predators in the night. In fact, the greatest danger to the pilgrim concerning his pilgrimage is his own self. Notice the temptation of the pilgrim. The first is this, that his mind would turn back. He says, and truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out. In other words, if he doesn't keep his mind more focused on where he's going instead of where he's been, sooner or later, he's going to be living back where he was instead of living where he's headed. You ever been? I don't know about you, man, but if I if I go on a trip, we go on vacation or something. I mean, it's amazing. I leave. I, there is no journey. I, when, when we're going going on vacation, I leave, and the moment I leave my driveway, I'm already there. Now, it might take me eight hours to get there, but when I leave, I'm already there. The journey is just the formality that we've got to get out of the way to get there. I'm not driving eight hours to a destination, looking around, going, "Boy, isn't this wonderful." I'm instead, I'm just this type of person looking around going, these crazy people on the interstate, they're going to run over me and you and God and everybody and kill everybody and it's awful and it's terrible and why do we even do this? Because the moment I leave, I'm already at my destination in my mind. You know, here's the reality for us as believers. Uh, in this journey, uh, the problem is not that we're distracted by our journey. The problem is we're distracted by our starting point or we're consumed with our destination point. And as believers, one of the greatest things you can do to vouchsafe your testimony is to have your mind consumed with that city we're going to, with the hope and home of heaven. The danger is that his mind would turn back. Then notice this. It says he'd been mindful of that country from whence they came out. Now, why does he say that? He doesn't say mindful of their home or mindful of where they started. But he says that country from whence they came out. It's almost a little awkward language, but it's trying to emphasize that they left that place. And every pilgrim leaves where they're at because they love where they're going more than where they were. And the danger for the pilgrim is that his mind would turn back. Number two is that his heart would turn back. If you fix your mind on where you've been, it won't be long. Your heart will be back there too. Why did God turn Lot's wife into a pillar of salt for a testimony? Seems kind of cruel, doesn't it? I mean, I'll be honest. I mean, I guess there's worse things to be turned into, but it's not a very happy fate for a person to have. And you say, well, preacher, that's cruel that God turned her into a pillar of salt. No, that's a mercy because the moment she turned back, God knew she was getting ready to run right into that hellfire and brimstone. It was more merciful that God strike her dead immediately than that God let her go back into Sodom and Gomorrah and be burned to death under the judgment of God in that city. See, here's the lesson of God turning her into a pillar of salt. 
The lesson is the moment she turned her head, she was gone. It wasn't that she was just looking back to see what happened. It wasn't just she was uh, was uh, wavering in her mind. It's the moment she looked back, she was back. It was just a matter of her just pacing the distance to get there. And God said it'd be a mercy if her life would stand as a testimony instead of only a tragedy. Why? Because when her mind went back, then her heart went back. And that's really the danger. It says this, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. I like how it says it. They might have had opportunity to have returned. Well, sure they had opportunity to have returned. But why does the pilgrim say we might have had opportunity? Because the pilgrim never stops to learn whether they do have opportunity. You see, faith motivates us to march forward and to not question and look back and say, wonder what could have been. Wonder how it could have been. Well, maybe if I had done this, maybe if I had done that. Listen, no telling how many homes have been wrecked by people saying, wonder what could have been. How many kids have been wrecked by, man, I wonder what could have been. How many lives have been wrecked by, man, I wonder what could have been. Let me tell you something as a believer. Get your mind off of what could have been. and Get your mind fixed on what's going to be. That's the temptation of the pilgrim. And then finally, and I'm done, I want you to notice the destination of the pilgrim. Uh, But they don't do that. That's what verse 16, when it says, but now they desire a better country, but they don't do that. They could, and there's a danger that their heart and their mind and their feet would turn back. But a pilgrim doesn't do those things. Somebody, a quitter does those things, but a pilgrim doesn't do those things. Why is that? Well, because they desire a better country that isn't heavenly. See, the pilgrim that reaches their destination, the reason they reach their destination is they don't go back. The reason they don't go back is they know there's a reason they left in the first place. Ah, listen, there's, and it's one of the great tragedies in so many lives of believers, especially people saved at a young age. I saved at a young age. And sometimes people saved at a young age, they, they didn't taste the dregs of, of, of the life of sin. And, and they didn't get their fill the way that a lot of people that, that lived in it and waited in it and rolled around in it did. And they'll get to thinking there's something left back in that life. But the reality is, there's nothing left back in there. Listen, I, I saved it 10 years old, but I'm going to be honest with you. If Even if I lived a hard life of sin and had tasted the dregs of, and drank the dregs of the cup of sin until I was 40, 50 years old, I, I wouldn't have made me less likely to get saved. That would have made me more likely to get saved. And so the pilgrim, they they desire a better country. And, and the destination, where are they headed to? Notice two things. Notice, number one, they're headed to a better land. But how they desire a better country, that isn't heavenly. Man, we're headed to a better land. I, I can't wait. And I got things I want to do and things I want to see done. And I'm not trying to just wish my life away. There's much work to be done for Christ. But I just tell you, every now and then I just indulge in thinking about heaven. And every now and then it does my heart good just to be reminded that this world doesn't win and this life doesn't win and death doesn't win and sin doesn't win. And we're headed to a better country, an heavenly one. They're headed to a better land, but then they're headed to a blessed Lord. He says this, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. In other words, he looks down and he's like, yeah, that's my people. That's my people. You know how I know they're my people? Because they ain't the devil's people. You know how I know they're heavenly people? Because they ain't worldly people. You know how I know they're my people? Because they're pilgrims and they're headed home to me. He's not ashamed to be called their God. We see the pride he feels. And then because of that, he's prepared for them a city. I see the place he's prepared. I'm glad he's preparing a place for us. I'm not one of these people that tries to spiritualize away all the realities of heaven. 
I'm glad he's preparing a place for us. I can't define and describe everything of all that that means. I don't have to. I trust his interior decorating skills. I think he'll do it right. Man, I ain't worried. I don't care if it's cabin or castle. I don't care if it's by the road or up in glory or over by the golden sea or the golden road or the lake with the trout in it. I don't care. I know he's doing it right. And part of being a pilgrim is letting loose of the attachments of this world and saying, I desire a better country. That ought to be our life, man. That ought to be my life. It ought to be yours. If it's not, you ought to make your mind up you want it to be tonight. Let's bow together as a musician comes to play. Father, I pray that you bless his invitation. And Lord, I trust the Holy Spirit to have done the office work that's his and his alone. So I ask that you'd use this invitation that your people would gain encouragement in you. And Lord, that they'd cast their, their hope and their heart upon you tonight. Father, bless this invitation. We ask it in Christ's name.